Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another great episode of Tripping Up, a comedy travel podcast. I'm your host, Nina Clapperton. Here at Tripping Up, we're all about celebrating travel, even the less glamorous side. Join me every other week as I chat with a guest about their funny travel stories. Due to the pandemic, I'm recording season one over audio calls, which unfortunately means the sound isn't great. And on top of that, my Wi-Fi wasn't behaving, so this episode does have some glitches. Please forgive the audio quality and focus on the incredible stories of this week's guest. Jules Mountain is a maverick entrepreneur and businessman. In 2007, he was diagnosed with an aggressive cancer that could kill him without immediate treatment. He was in the process of selling his second business when he suddenly had to endure a seven-hour operation and four months of chemo. While he was able to sell his business, proving his mental capacity hadn't suffered, Jules needed to prove that he was still physically as capable as ever after his treatment. That's what led Jules, a bit accidentally, to the Everest Base Camp on April 25th, 2015. That was where he was when the worst earthquake in living memory struck Nepal. He survived where many didn't. Jules shares his story in his book, Aftershock, which I'll tell you more about at the end of the show. Jules now advises businesses and is a motivational speaker, as well as a loving father of two. This man has been through more in one lifetime than most will ever experience. He's still brilliant and funny, even as he recounts the trauma he endured, including the one he inflicted on himself by going back to climb Everest in 2016. Somehow, we made it through the whole episode without me commenting on how apt his last name is, but I really felt like I had to include it here. I mean, you almost have to climb Everest with a last name like Mountain. Anyway, Jules is a fascinating person and a true case study in mind over matter. I think you'll really enjoy hearing his story. This is Jules Mountain on Tripping Up. Now boarding. Hi, Jules. Welcome to Tripping Up Podcast. We're very excited to have you with us. Hi, Nina. Great to be here. So our listeners can get to know you a bit better. We'd love to start off with you telling us about how you travel and why you travel. I, I travel for two reasons. One for pleasure, one for business. I've traveled all over the world. Um, the particular story that you want to tell is about my trip to Everest. 
I did that because I wanted to prove after I've been diagnosed with cancer in 2007, I wanted to prove to myself that I was still as capable after having had cancer and chemotherapy and a seven and a half hour operation, I wanted to prove to myself that I was still as capable a human being before as I was afterwards. And I don't know with one of the interesting things, actually, when you have uh, chemo, it affects all the extremities. So your fingers, your toes, and you get a very numb sensation. That can be, I believe that can be a long lasting effect because of course you've affected the circulation. Because one of the things with the cold, one of the critical things with the cold and frostbite is circulation and oxygenation of the bloodstream. So I wasn't quite sure how I would cope at extremes of altitude where it was freezing cold, whether you know I would get frostbite more quickly than somebody else. Wow. Yeah, I would never have thought about that effect, but that must have been very scary having to kind of add that to the mix of climbing Everest. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was very uh, worrying for me because I was thinking I'm probably not going to know until we're on the last stage, you know, the Everest, you've got base camp, camp one, two, three, four on the summit. I'm probably not going to know until I'm at camp three or four, whether that's going to have an impact. Wow. Did you think, um, do you think that your chemotherapy affected any of your oxygenation with needing uh, certain amounts of oxygen as you climbed as well? I don't know because I bore and I tried Everest again, then I would have known the results, but I don't know that. I know that I've got an abnormally uh, large lung capacity. Oh, okay. uh, when I had it tested, I had it tested after the chemo. I had quite a few problems afterwards, and it can affect your heart. They have something called flabby heart from chemotherapy wow. as well, where it forms a sac around the heart, which is which can be quite detrimental. And I had some minor issues. And of course, once you've had cancer and you've had chemo for about five years, you're on the uh, you're on the fast track record back into hospital for anything you get. Which yeah. is actually quite. I've got to say, it's actually that's actually one of the positives. You know, <laughs> you get you, you every time every time you have a cough or a cold or you have a lump. You're zooming straight back in again and you get fantastic treatment and, you know, the x-ray, everything, you're into scanners and, you know, it's it's a nice reassuring feeling. Yeah. And after five years, it's like, right, you know, you're good, out you go, out the door. And they're always very open and willing to again. After five years, you're, you're deemed fine again. Yeah. So it was in that period, any yeah. sort of cough or cold. So I had a I had a breathing problem. It probably was nothing more than infection. So, of course, I was zoomed back in again and they put me in a vacuum chamber Mm-hmm. made me breathe on a special apparatus to, to test my lung capacity. And I've got an abnormally high. It's about uh, 1.4 times the lung capacity. So that's Amazing. great because I need to oxygenate on Everest and I've got, a, I've got large lungs. So it means I can oxygenate very well. Yeah. Doesn't mean to say I found it easy. It was incredibly <laughs> hard. But it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. A positive. Yeah. That's really great. Now we're going to ask you a question we ask all of our guests. Um, have you collected a weird souvenir throughout your travels that stuck with you? I, I Not a weird one throughout my travels from Everest. These are the two things that I've got. And um, I'm just trying to find where the other one. <laughs> I will show you these actually, because I've never taken these off actually. That, that is, you see the red yes. one? Yes. Well, you can see that it's red like one. a red string around your neck for the listeners. The red string, yeah. That was given to me by a Buddhist monk. Wow. And Everest has a, a, a god living on it called Chumalunga is the, the the god of the Everest mountain they believe and when you walk on Everest you're upsetting Chumalunga so they give you this red uh, string they tie it around your neck and it's to protect you and I was told uh, you, you mustn't take this off it must naturally break if you take it off it's bad luck okay and I'm not a superstitious person I don't really believe in all I don't, I don't know whether I believe it or I don't believe it but you go into the mountain and you think well it 
you know, can't yeah. hurt. Can it? So <laughs> I, and I've never taken it off since, actually. I've worn over it. It won't actually come off. It won't get over my head, so I've left it on. And it will eventually break. But it's as a little souvenir, actually, that I carried to the, uh, to the summit. I thought it'd be nice to have something. It's just a pendant. It doesn't mean anything to do. Yeah. I thought it'd be nice to have something that has been to the summit of Everest. So I carried two. I gave one to my daughter and I kept the other. No, no, I haven't taken that off either, actually. I just wear that. I know it's just crazy things, isn't it? But that's, uh, you know, I've been fine ever since. So whether the, red, <laughs> whether the red string does any good, I don't know. But they do. They chant a lot of stuff and then they sort of pull you towards them and you sort of crash heads together and they tie the string on. It's like, <laughs> you know, and that was uh, and that was it. I don't know. I'm not superstitious, but I thought, why not? I mean, good luck is good luck. Whatever you can take, as long as it's not like you have to sacrifice your first bone on the top of the mountain or something. Might as well go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, there was nothing as weird as that, actually. We, we, had a, we had a puja ceremony where they, they put sort of power on your, on your lip and they do chanting. And, and um, again, it's a Buddhist ceremony. I didn't understand any of it, but we all sat there and we did this puja ceremony. And that's part of the process of climbing the mountain. You have these puja ceremonies before you go to the summit. And um, the, the Sherpas very much believe in it. And, it and it helps and guides them. So I'm happy to get involved, yeah. you know. So is that only on the Nepalese side or do they do it on both sides of the mountain? Uh, on the Tibetan side, I don't know. I haven't been on the Tibetan okay. side. So I was on the on the south side of Nepal. So on the Tibetan side, I don't know what they do. I suspect it's probably similar. I mean, the Sherpas came over from Tibet originally. They were chased out of Tibet by the Chinese oh. about 300 years ago. And they came over the mountains, over the coals. The These people are trading across the coals and the mountains. And the first valley they, they came to was the Kumbu Valley which is a valley leading up to Everest. And it's quite fertile. So they came over from Tibet 300 years ago and they've been ever since. So the Sherpas, although they are considered Nepalese, the Sherpas are a little race within Nepal. They're a race within a race, you know? Yes. And they're all related. So their surname is Sherpa. People then realize that they call them Sherpas, but actually their surname is Sherpa. So our, our expedition leader was Nina Sherpa. Okay. That was the second year, the first year I was there, I was climbing with his uncle, Herbatashi. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, that's my uncle. And I thought, yeah, uncle, you know, distant related. No, no, it was his brother's brother's son. It was actually <laughs> his real cousin. You're thinking, wow, this is, this really is, you know, this, this is his actual uncle, really small family. And you realize that, yeah, wow, at these, these Sherpas are, they are all related. They're all brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts. And what they've done is just valley length of the Kumbu Valley and they're all part of the, Sher the same Sherpa family which is quite yeah, it's quite incredible when you think about it like yeah, that yeah it's absolutely I mean it's talk about like having a job in your blood you're really set for it and I mean and obviously like their blood they're better at the higher altitudes than most of us which I think is fascinating yeah well I mean most of the uh, most of the Sherpas that climb come from the Kumjong village and we went and stayed in the village which is where Perbatashi lives and um that village is at 3,000 meters. So, you know, you are at an incredible height already. And that's where Sir Evan Hillary built the first school for them back in the 1960s. And, you know, that, that was, before that, they, they were, they were um, walking around in cloth sacks when there was snow on the ground. Wow. So it was incredibly, incredibly difficult for them. And now they wear climbing gear because all the expeditions leave climbing gear behind. So the Sherpas wear the gear that we, we give them or we leave behind. And they've got the school there as well. And, you know, uh, Nina Sherpa, he was a qualified doctor. Wow. Qualified by Western standards. You know, he'd gone to the school in the village. He'd then gone on to Kathmandu. 
Uh, he then got a place at university in China and he'd gone to qualify as a doctor and he'd worked over here in the UK. He worked over in America as well. Then guess what? He'd gone back to Nepal and he's now leading expeditions up Everest, you know, next to his, his home village, you know, and that's what he loves doing. He said, that's what I love doing. I love the expeditions and the climbing. It's in their blood. Yeah. So he's now the expedition leader and the expedition doctor at the same time. And it must be very beneficial to have a doctor kind of at hand the whole time. It was um, very beneficial, yeah. Amazing. Well, we've loved hearing about your story so far. Would you mind sharing your tripping up travel story with us, please? There's two very good weather stations. The team leader was permanently in contact with them about how the weather's looking, satellite images, you know, and when we're going to get a clear weather window long enough to allow us to get from basic camp up and back down again. Yeah. And we had, they had a clear weather window three days. So he picked the four of us that had made it to camp three. He said, right, you four are going. He said, you four are going. You've got three days to get to the summit and get off the summit. That's <laughs> like, tell you, that, that is not long. That's not long. That is, that's like, wow. So we're going to go from base camp to camp two. Then we go from camp two to camp three for night, camp three to camp four. Then we're going for summit. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, wow. That's, and this is it. You know, this is, and I was so, so pleased to be in the first team. Because you never know whether there'll be another clear weather window. So I didn't know whether the whether you know whether the other twelve people in the expedition would ever get a chance to have a go at it. So I so desperately wanted to be in the first team, and I, you know, I thought, gosh, you know, how would I feel if I hadn't been picked? You know, so I felt slightly guilty towards the other twelve people that had to wait their turn. Mm -hmm. Anyway, off we went, and uh, we we got up to camp two, and uh, it was blazing. It was blazingly hot the day we did it. And I really struggled to get to camp two, really struggled, you know, and it was a real push to get there. And I was really dehydrated. So I drank loads of water. And then the next, the next day up to camp three at the Lotsey Face, that is honestly, it's a killer. Got up, we got up to the camp. When we got to the camp, they told us that our tents were up in the high point above the other oh. tents. So having got there, you know, you're on your, honestly, I can't tell you, you're on your knees. You're hanging on, you're like, I made it, I made it, I made it. And they go, I go, where's the tent? And they go, oh, it's up there. And you're like, oh. It's only, it's only another sort of, you know, it's only another, it was probably, I don't know, about another 400 meters, but 400 meters of that altitude, every step is six breaths. <laughs> and they step them. <laughs> and the only way I could keep going was to count the steps. Okay. So I used to do a counting. So you'd count, you, you'd, you'd take a step and I count one, two, three, four, five, six. Each time I breathe, it's like, right now, step again. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now step again. So you're willing yourself after every sixth breath to step again. We got into the tents at camp three, and the Sherpa said, oh, there's your oxygen cylinders. Uh, uh, you know, plug yourselves in. And I'm thinking, we, we've been shown, we had like 30 minutes, they've shown us how to use the oxygen back then at base camp. <laughs> I'm thinking, I hope we get this right. <laughs> so you put it on, you know, you turn the gas on, you're like, oh, that's great, pure oxygen. Yeah, it's really like, like rocket fuel, it's yeah. great. So half a litre a minute overnight. So we, we adjusted them all, got in our sleeping bags. So we're, back, we're going back down to camp two. We're like, really? And then good food, of course. They got a cook down there. We were cooking our own food at camp three. Mm -hmm. So we got our little stoves out, cooked our own, and they went back down to camp two. They said, yeah, we'll be up in the morning. We'll come up in the morning and we'll sort you out. Of course, morning arrives. You know, next day is to get to camp four. No Sherpas. <laughs> Sherpas haven't turned up. <laughs> So like eight o'clock in the morning, no Sherpas. And we're like, we tried radioing down. We couldn't get hold of anybody. So we're like, well, what do we do? Let's crack on then. Let's go for it. Wow. So, so we, we all, 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 all four, four of us packed up, got our oxygen cylinders on 
adjusted them and off we went to, to Camp 4. We actually got to Camp 4 before the Sherpas called us up. <laughs> we did the whole stretch from Camp 3 to Camp 4 with no Sherpas. And uh, it was, you know, it was six breaths, one step, six breaths, one step. And we're all going at different speeds. So two of the guys went on ahead of me. You're all going at your own spoke. You clipped in. So it's just pull yourself up on the right. They're like, two, three, four, five, six, you know, and then breathe. And then, you know, on, and then step, you know. And what I did is I counted, lots of your face is so long, it's so steep. I thought what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll do the six breaths, but I'll count to 100 as well. Okay. So one, two, three, four, five, six, step. That's one. One, two, three, four, five, six, step. That's two. So every step I was counting every step. I thought if I do 100 steps, I'm surely I'm going to have done a lot of the lotsy face by then. So I counted to 100. And, and I, I, I wasn't allowed to look up <laughs> until I counted to 100. I looked up and I'm like, oh, God, I've gone nowhere. I've gone nowhere. <laughs> so let's count to 200 this time. So off we go again, you know, six breaths, a step. That's one. Six breaths. And then I counted and I did 200. And then that time I had made more progress. And then... The, the route up turned turned across to the left. So that's heading to the west then. You're going sort of across the mountain base. And that was better because it was just a change of angle, a change of something, anything was good. And it wasn't so steep, so I could make more progress. And I caught up with a few people. And then if you catch up with them, you've got to try and get past them. And you're all on the rope. So you have to unclip, hold onto the rope with your hands and sort of slide past me like, and it's the effort to get past them Clip back in again to keep going. The effort to pass somebody, I, honestly, it's it's huge, huge. But if they're not going at your pace, what you don't want to do is be held up. If you've got, you know, you're, you're moving, you're going, you're going, at, you've got a rhythm and you, it's important to keep the rhythm up. Then of course, in, in passing them, I'd pass them and I'd fall on my knees. I'd be like, <gasps> pass, you know, and then I'd, I'd fall on my knees and I'd pick myself up again to keep going so I'm not holding them mm -hmm. up. Then gradually you sort of pull away from them as you're going up a bit further. Got to camp four. I'm six foot three. I'm a big guy. And the other two guys weren't small. They got there before me. So there's three of us, three of us. And it's blowing. It's windy up there. It's horrible. There's three of us cramped in with all our equipment, these massive backpacks as well, the oxygen cylinders. And there's three of us in two-man tent. So the three of us are sideways on the tent, cramped into it. And one of the guys has got the stove on and he's cooking a little bit of food on the stove. But of course, you know, at that, at that altitude, it takes like two hours to boil water. Mm -hmm. It takes forever. And anyway, the Sherpa said, oh, you've got to move tent. And I'm like, no, no, I'm good in this tent. And he said, no, no, you've got to move tent. And the other guy by that stage got up. So the Sherpa start setting another tent up. And then I had to put all my gear back on again to crawl, you know, literally 10 meters to get in the other tent without getting covered in snow. And then unpack everything again. And then dig a little hole and get the cooker set up and get cooking. And then try and eat as much as you know. But else you don't want to eat. Over the, over the eight weeks... You're there, even at base camp, you will lose your appetite for food. You're really eating for the sake of eating. You don't want to eat anything. Mm -hmm. You know, at altitude, it just, it, just, it just happens to the body. So I'm forcing myself to eat these packets of noodles and something else, pour the boiling water. We couldn't get the water to boil, so we poured it in. It was lukewarm, and that, that'll do. Just chuck it in and then eat the stuff. You know, it's these packet, you know, the silver packet things. Yeah. And then we had some stuff. And then, and then it was like, right, let's pack in there, have some soup, have some tea, and then let's pack in board of cooking. And that took about... I took about five hours to do, to do the oh dinner. Oh, my goodness. And then uh, your body, of course, is consuming a vast amount of food. They say it's something like, like eating 24 Christmas dinners. Wow. That's what somebody's quoted to me. I don't know if that's right, but I mean, that's 24 Christmas dinners. You mentioned that. I lost two stone. Wow. I lost two stone in weight. We're in contact with the team leader, Nima Sherpa, back at uh, base camp, and he's in contact permanently with the weather stations. There's a permanent communication 
on the radios to say, can we go or can we not go? We were going to go at 10 o'clock. So we're waiting for the 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, 10 o'clock comes. Uh, sorry, no, it was 8 o'clock. We're going to get 8 o'clock. Sorry, 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock comes and it goes, and it's, it's no go at the moment. Okay, so back to sleep again. 9 o'clock comes. So I'll wake up again at 9 o'clock, set the alarm, wake up again. And, and the Sherpa's in the tent next to me, right next to me. So I'm shouting. I'm, I'm like, Lakpa, Lakpa. And he's like, yeah, George, George. I said, Lakpa, are we going? And the wind's howling through. You can hear the wind howling through. I'm like, are we going? Are we going? I I radio, I radio, I radio. So we're shouting through the tent canvas. You know. It's like, no, 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 we're not going. So I'm back to sleep again for another hour. Wake up again. It was like some sort of Japanese torture, yeah. you know, that sort of sleep deprivation torture, you know. And so we're uh, we're uh, back to sleep again, and then wake up again an hour later. And are we going? Are we going? No, we're not going. So I kept getting this broken hour sleep, wake up, hour sleep, wake up. And at midnight, I, I saw headlamp torches flickering outside the tent for it. I knew they were going mm -hmm. for it. Uh, and I'm like, I'm shouting the luck bar, but the other teams, they're going for it. The other teams are going for it. You know, haven't got there to count four. Yeah. This is the moment. This is it. You know, this is the moment. I didn't want to not go. I'm like, this is the moment. <sighs> so I'm shouting to them through the tent. They're going. The other teams are going. Yes, I radio, I radio. So bear in mind, we're now already four hours late. Don't make the summit by two o'clock. You've got to turn around. It's too late in the day because oh. the time it takes to get back down again. So if we didn't get up there by that stage, so and, uh, I'm thinking this is not this is not, uh, this is not good. You know, we're, we, we've cut the time window, the envelope to make it. So anyway, so we get the approval to go and we are the last, we're the last one. We were going to be the first yeah. out of Camp 4. We're the last expedition. And I think there were only two other expeditions up there with us because it's a very, three days is really tough to do it. So the other, a lot of the other expeditions that were there decided it was too short a window. They weren't going to send, they weren't going to risk the expedition's people on a three-day window, it's too tight. So they hadn't gone. So there were only us and two other expeditions up there. And we were the last one, we were at the back, you know. And all I can see up ahead of me, it's all pitch black, I've got a headlamp torch on, and I'm trying to put my gear on. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm trying to put my harness on. I'm trying to put my crampons on. Get my ice axe and pack everything up, you know. Oh, it was just, nothing was working right. And of course, I'd lost weight and my harness wouldn't tighten properly. Nothing was going right, you know. It was one, and you really, when you're really tired as well, you're really tired, couldn't get it together at all. It's having a really bad start. And um, I was at the back of our group. So we had two Sherpas with us. Uh, oh, that's right. The guy in my tent wouldn't go. Yeah, I've got to mention uh-huh. that to you. The other guy in my tent wouldn't go. He said, I'm not going. I said, come on, mate, come on. You can do this. I said, you can do this. We're here now. You can do this. You know you can do it. Come on, let's go. He's like, no, I'm not going. I'm not going. So he wouldn't go. So I went. The other two guys in the tent went and the two Sherpas. So fine, let's go into the stomach. And uh, I was behind the other two. And, uh, and the Sherpas were behind me. I remember looking up and all I could see, all I could see in a pitch black, you know, you've got the rope in front of you. You're sliding your Joomla on the rope and you're pulling yeah. up. And I, all I can see is what my headlamp torch can show me in front of me. And I'm looking at the mountain and I can see flashing up above me here, somewhere up, so high, up there. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness me. I've got to get up there? I'm like, are you for real? And it, they're just flat. They're, they're so high above me. It's like, it's like, it's like you're looking at an aeroplane sky. And I'm thinking, I've got, to, you know, I've got to climb up to that point. And then I remember it got to about, uh, about 4, 4.30, and, and it started getting light. And it was just amazing. That really did picked me up. We stopped for tea at one point. It was snowing as well. It was snowing on us and the wind was blowing. It was pretty horrible. We stopped for tea at one point and there was a picture of me with a mug of tea sipping it. It's, uh, I love it. It's great. <laughs> and mini Mars bars. I, I climbed Everest on mini Mars bars. <laughs> you have to get corporate sponsorship. <laughs> I let them put in so I can get them. The problem was that they were frozen. They were frozen mini Mars bars. So I'd get them out. And I sort of managed to wait for them with my gloves on. You know, I put them out and, like, and of course your lips are frozen as well. Your face is frozen. Your lips are frozen. You try and put me in, you're like, and you've got this lump of frozen stuff in your mouth. And I'm trying to sort of soften it up and chew it. And then after a while, it would start to soften. You'd be able to chew it with an oxygen mask on. And then, you know, you, you sort of swallow it down. It's like, that's good. And I know within 20 minutes, I'd get a sugar rush. Yeah. And that would keep me going, you know. And I was just eating mini Mars bars all the way to the summit. And then the sun, and then anyway, the, 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 the sun came up to see the world, you know. And you know you're on top of the world. You are literally on top of the world. This beautiful, incredible sunrise in the morning. And by uh, by six o'clock, it was light. They're very light. I mean, I could see everything. And so after six hours of climbing, I was starting to get into rhythm. Okay. And it was really hard. And then and then there was an amazing moment. I can't remember what time it was. Um, but I got on top of this. We came round onto this lift. You had to climb this. There was a big piece of vertical rock mm-hmm. you had to climb up it and it was I, I can't tell you how hard that was it was like oh jeepers and it was only really probably 15 feet high mm-hmm. but you had to literally mm-hmm. pull yourself up so got up this rock face mm-hmm. and then we came around the corner over this ridge and that was it and I'm like oh my word there's the summit that was the first time I'd seen the summit there it was you know well, I thought it was the summit but it's the mm-hmm. false summit I was so happy that I you know I thought you know I made my daughter proud of me that I've actually managed to climb Everest. That was a thought going through my mm-hmm. mind at the moment. Why well, didn't realize it was a false summit and there was two more summits. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so then I'm, I'm, I'm then I'm then with Taha, one of the other climbers. I can't remember where Yella. Taha's from um, uh, France, 
and yellow sort of Belgian. Okay. And Tar said, there's something wrong with my oxygen mask. So we got to this, we were at this point and we sort of stopped. And he said, there's something with my oxygen mask. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, it's, it's, it's something wrong. I can't breathe properly through it. And he says, he says, I'm going to wait. And I said, I'll wait with you. He said, no, no, you go on, you go on. I said, no, no, I can wait. He said, no, no, go on. I said, I said, I don't have to go on. He said, you, you must go on. You must go on. So I trucked off. So the Sherpas, everyone's behind me then. And I'm, I'm, I'm the first. I'm sort of in the, in the lead of our group, if yeah. you like. You know, honestly, I can, you know, they say summit fever, absolute total summit fever. <laughs> and you know, I just nothing, nothing. Wild horses wouldn't drive me backwards at that point. So I'm tracking on, and I could see this, this, um, um, I could see this, this lady climber in front of me, with a Sherpa, and um, I thought, you know, it's like running a marathon, really. And you, you mark somebody, and you, you, your objective is to keep up with them. So I just track them all the way up. And just every time they took a step, I'd take a step. Every time they took a step, I'd take a step. So this what I thought was a summit. And I'm like, oh, no. And I'm looking. And then when you get over this crest, you then see there's another peak over there. And you've got to go down and back up again. I'm like, oh, you can't be kidding me. So anyway, so down I go. I ever took, took them this point. And I went down and back up again. So I thought was the, next, the next one wasn't the summit either. And then beyond that, I could see what I thought must be the true summit. So there was another one. And it was down again and back up again. And when I got to the final one, honestly, it's the most innocuous mound of snow. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. It's just like a lump of snow. And there's a load of prayer flags on it. So I, I really did suspect that this was the summit. The three guys sitting there, I'm like, is this summit? And they're like, yeah, mate, well done, you made it. I'm like, oh, thanks. So we all shook hands, yeah. you know, we all shook hands. Yeah. And one guy, one guy said something, I can't remember what he was about it. He was sort of like... Um, I can't, I, I, I put it in the book, I can't remember what the phrase was in there. And uh, something like, yeah, it's not, not very spectacular summit, is it? I'm like, this is a summit, this is it, I made it, you know, cheapers, mate, you know. I want to be like, yeah, yeah, you know, I was so happy yeah. to be there. But it is, it's just, it's just like a mound, it's not a spiky thing, it's like a mound, you know. It's, 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 it's just an obvious mound with a lot of prayer flags on it. So I sat down, I sat down and I relaxed, I thought, this is great, you know, I'm here. But I thought, right, I've got to wait for my team now. So I'm sitting there for 20 minutes, I'm starting to get quite cold. I'm not moving. And then I can see them coming up. I can see uh, the Sherpa. Sherpa comes up, one of the Sherpa, one of the Sherpas, and he's like, shakes my hand, you know. I'm like, wow, that's great, fantastic, you know. And then Taha and Yella come up as well, and we all shake hands, and we're all sitting there. And I start to get really cold. And I said, guys, I'm going to have to move. I'm getting very cold. So I come off the summit, and my, my fingers are so cold at this point. I think I've got to sit down for a minute and warm them up to my leg. Fatal mistake, fatal mistake. Because once you sit down, Above count four, you never get up again. Yeah. So I sit down. I just huddle, yeah. in, I huddle into a corner. I'm like, yeah, I just, I'm just sort of breathing. In. I'm just, it's nice and relaxed now. I'm nice and relaxed. It's all going very calm. It's all going very quiet, very calm. I'm like, it's lovely, yeah, lovely. And I see a couple of people go past me. It's Taha and Yella. I sort of vaguely, vaguely remember them going past me. And it's all lovely. It's all going very peaceful. And all of a sudden, Bang, I got a smack on the head. And it's the Sherpa. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And he's like, he goes, oh, 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 oh. I'm like, no, oh, so I'm really tired, really tired. Oh, oh. And then he checks my option. I've run out of option. Wow. Um, I'm 150 meters from the summit of from the summit of Everest. I've run out of oxygen. So my actual Sherpa, my Sherpa, is supposed to be looking up me, wasn't with me. He'd stayed down at that little corner where I've seen the false summit. Yeah. He'd give his oxygen mask to Taha. And he'd taken TARS and he decided that he'd see if any of the other expeditions had a spare oxygen mask, then he'd catch us up. Well, nobody did. So he'd stayed down there on his faulty oxygen mask and given Taha's oxygen mask, so Taha could have a go at the summit. 
he'd already summoned it five times before, so it was no big deal for him. So I'm there with, not with my Sherpa, I'm there with Taha's Sherpa, and I've got no oxygen. Oh, God. So I'm looking through, it, looking through a tunnel, with a little prick of light in the distance, and all of a sudden, zzz, the light comes racing in. You know, and all I could see was my daughters, you know. And I was slept, basically going to sleep with lack of oxygen. Wow. And he puts the oxygen mask, he's like, whoa, lights come on. So he changes over his bottle for my bottle, and as soon as he changes his bottle over, he's gone, he's off. Yeah. You know, because he's basically got no oxygen. And we stashed some oxygen bottles on the way up. And he's got to, he's got to get he's got to get to that first stash of oxygen. So he's really panicking now because he's put his life in danger as well. And he's left me there with oxygen. And I've got to get up. I've got to get up and move. If you have you seen the 1997 film? Or do you remember when she's speaking to her husband on the phone? He's like, I can't move, I can't move, I can't yeah. get up. And she's screaming to him to get up, you've got to move, you've got to move. But it's like that. You know, I'm I'm even higher than he was at that point, my hundred meters off the summit. I'm, I'm sat there, you know, on some fresh oxygen. I'm thinking, I've got to get up now. I've got to get up. I've got to get up. I've got to get up. I just got up and started moving and just started heading down. And uh, and again, and I got in my stride. On the way down, I got in my stride. I was basically the last person on the mountain that day. I was I was alone up there. They say it's 70% psychological and 30% physical. So really, it's the belief of whether you've got up here, you know, do you believe that you can truly make it? And do you have the willpower to keep going? You know, you need to be reasonably fit, but it is up here. It's, it's mental, really. And, it's, you know, you're, you're never more alive when you're close to death, you know, really, truly. So, and the stories in the book, Aftershock Everest, the story is in the book, um, but the story you've heard me describe there about the summit in 2016 and collapsing for lack of oxygen, that's not in the book. 2016 bits covered very briefly. So this, the, the, the summiting is covered for me. That's incredible. I mean, I'm going to share a travel story of my own now, and it comes nowhere close to what you did. Uh, so keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm, sure it's a good, I'm sure it's great. Every travel yeah. story is a great travel story. That's very true. Um, so I was living in New Zealand last year. There's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to skydive. I read a book at 16, and I was convinced it was like the thing I needed to do in life. So um, in New Zealand, I spent far too much money to do it. That way I could get the video, go up to the highest altitude they had to get photos and all this nonsense that I've yet to look at again. Um, other than once with my friends to literally see my own face, face flapping in the wind and kind of like, I guess a little bit like Everest where they're like, take your first opportunity because New Zealand is notorious for bad weather. Um, a lot of the places where you skydive are over glaciers and the glaciers are in rainforests. So you can't, you can't be sure when it's going to rain and you'll get canceled and like you're spending a day in each place. So you don't really know when you'll get to do it again. So I was in Taupo, which is um, a Northern Lake in New Zealand. And it was the first opportunity I'd signed up. I was like, I don't think it'll happen. Let's just put our name down, whatever. And then suddenly three of us are being like herded off this bus um, into a little van. They don't really tell us what's happening. I was napping. So I was kind of woken up and was told like, get on this bus, go, go, go. And with no warning at all, we're kind of sat. We have to pick music for um, the video or whatever. We have to sign a couple waivers, throw our stuff in a locker, put on a jumpsuit that's like, I, I would not even call that a jumpsuit. It was like putting on a, a thin sheet that had been stapled together. <laughs> I texted my parents to say, going skydiving and then immediately had my phone taken away from me. So my poor parents, I was not able to tell them anything else for the next like hour while they had to get us ready and take us up. Oh my word. And it was brilliant. Like we, we went up and so because I chose to go from 15,000 feet, we had to get an oxygen mask, but it was like, 
Like I picture one of those COVID masks. If you just put like a little tube into it, like it wasn't a true oxygen mask. Yeah, yeah. Two of us decided to go from the higher height. And so we're just sitting on this little plane that has like long wooden benches. Our partner, the, the actual certified person that's taking us on this jump, we're in their lap, essentially. None of them have the mask bit. They just have the tube, like they're smoking Heisha, like they're the, the caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland almost. And then in another second, you're sitting on the side of this plane with your legs dangling in midair. And they tell you to lean back and arch your body like a banana, which is insane because you're sitting down, so you can't be a banana. And then they just roll you out of that plane and you are free falling. And it, it was so cold because, I mean, we were in New Zealand in summer. Is it double stack or single? So you had to, because I'm not certified, we had to go with a guide. So it's double. Um, so it's me and my guide, another girl and her guide. And I, I think I went last. I don't know why I decided to do that or if I even got the choice. But so I'd seen three other people tumble out of this plane at various altitudes. And now it was my turn <laughs> and just like disappear into the abyss. Like we couldn't see them anymore. But yeah. And I was wearing like shorts and a tank top because middle of summer, didn't really think I'd be doing this. Forgot that at 15,000 feet, it's freezing out. So, freezing cold, yeah, yeah. so I'm falling. I tried to like, he's doing the video. So I'm trying to like be cute. And um, I remember trying to blow my mom a kiss because she and I have this thing where we give like, we do a heart and then we blow a kiss. But as I try to move my hand to my face to blow the kiss, I end up slapping myself in the face because of the air pressure. It just throws my <laughs> hand directly into my face. And I mean, it was, it was a brilliant time. I got to like control the parachute when we pulled it. We landed really easily. Um, unfortunately, I didn't know I was getting a sinus infection at the time. So one of my ears wouldn't pop the entire time. And actually for the next week, I was yelling at everyone I saw because I couldn't hear out of one ear <laughs> until I finally <laughs> realized I had a sinus infection and got medication. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely story. That's a lovely. And did you, did you, did you, was your mom happy when she, uh, I bet she was delighted when she heard you finished it. Yeah, she was very happy when she found out I was on the ground again. Um, my dad was also, he he's terrified of heights, can't go in the elevators and condominiums, he can't like, look out a window from high up, he can't do any of mm. that. So when he heard I was free falling through the sky, he was like, Oh, God. <laughs> um, and then actually, the one who was most horrified of all was my grandmother. Um, I write a travel blog, and I posted about it and put the video in at the bottom. And she's super supportive. So she reads the blog, she watches all the videos. Um, I've never gotten a more more angry phone call from my grandmother in my life. Um, she called my mom. Yeah, she called my mom first. So my mom talked her down. So my version that I got was the contained version where I, I was oh. still told that I had nearly given my poor 89 year old grandmother a heart attack. Oh, well, sure. She was quite proud of you. I think, I think now, yeah. Now that she knows my feet are on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Will you go back and do it again? Oh, 100%. I would love to skydive again. I mean, I would, I'd also love to go back to New Zealand. I left much faster than I'd intended. Well, now that we've both shared our travel stories, would you mind sharing uh, the listener mail that I sent you? Okay, the title, the title is Listener Mail. So you've probably heard or seen of those tiny little villages where all the houses are painted cutely in different colours and the roads are super narrow because it was built for a time of horse and carts. Well, I once went on a trip with a band to one of those adorable places in a massive coach. 
Now, you'd think that they'd have researched the route before. They had not. It took something like 16-point turn just to navigate down one little street. That was on the way there. The real drama with our coach versus the itty-bitty street came when we were leaving. We had packed up all our stuff. The adults had triple-checked with us that nothing had been left behind. And then we set off in the coach, fighting through a narrowly mistaking out legitimate buildings when we finally let our breath out. Phew, we were out of the village. Hey, where's the flags? The colored guard had left their performance flags back at our accommodation. We collectively nearly screamed at the thought of having to wind through the village again, especially as we were now on a tighter schedule to get to the ferry. So two lads ended up jumping off of the coach, running to a to, to the accommodation, and then running back with the flags, all before the coach had made it out of the last winding road of the village. When planning your trip, remember that Google Maps doesn't show road sizes, Charlotte. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. That was wonderful. Um, so now that we've all shared our tripping up stories, I like to end on something positive to remind us why we travel and how great travel is. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a positive travel story with us to kind of lift our spirits, that'd be great. I think it's, I think traveling is about sharing an experience and I'm really looking forward to this summer. I'm hoping this summer, obviously with COVID-19, I'm hoping we'll be able to go, but I'm looking forward to taking my two daughters to the French Alps, doing some cycling, swimming, walking. It'll be lovely. And, you know, obviously with lockdown, with COVID-19, it's been difficult for everybody. I just hope that we are uh, we're able to go, and it's a wonderful time. You know, it, these holidays are magical when they're when they're shared with loved ones. I 100% agree. I mean, um, I'm usually a solo traveler. I usually go entirely on my own, but my mom and I always do a birthday trip every year, where she takes me away for my birthday somewhere or meets me somewhere in the world. And those are some of my favorite trips, just getting to kind of see my mom. It is. It's lovely. I think it's really nice, and it. Uh, and, and you get time to actually catch up properly and chat to each other. There's no distractions, you know. Yeah. You're there and you're together. And I think it's lovely. It's uh, very magical. So I very much enjoy that. Amazing. Well, we've loved having you on the podcast, Jules. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dean. It's been a real pleasure. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day. I'm so glad that Jules has survived everything life's thrown at him. And everything he's thrown at himself. We've loved having him come on the podcast and share his stories with all of you. In this episode, we focus more on Jules Mountain's second trip to Everest, but his first is even more fascinating, although not as well suited for a comedy show. Jules's book, Aftershock, is a true story of one man's resilience. After surviving cancer, he became more determined than ever to achieve his lifelong dream of summiting Everest. But when the worst earthquake to hit Nepal strikes on the 25th of April 2015, Jules is shivering in his tent at base camp, a disaster that would leave over 8,000 dead and thousands more missing and injured triggers an avalanche that buries Jules alive. The survivors at base camp are faced with an impossible set of decisions. Do they flee to the safe zone? Do they become part of the relief effort? Do they finish their mission to summit Everest? At 5,600 meters above sea level, it's hard to distinguish between logic, compassion, and risk. Aftershock is a story of survival, of physical trials that most of us will never face, and internal ones that are surprisingly applicable to modern life. It's a great read for an adventurer that dreams of summiting Everest, those fascinated by the powers of nature, and anyone looking for a true human story. 
This book will motivate you to achieve your dreams and push yourself to your limits, even if you have no desire to climb a mountain. All proceeds from Aftershock go to supporting cancer work at the UCLH Hospital in London. Jules actually doesn't make any profit off the book, so please purchase a copy to help support life-saving research that keeps even more fantastic people like Jules with us. It's a win-win, really. You get an awesome read, and we get another step closer to solving cancer. I'll link the book in the description. If you'd like to hear more about Jules's first and second trips to Everest, become a Tripping Up patron on Patreon. For way less than the license to climb Everest, you could subscribe for over 200 years. Yes, I check. You'll get access to bonus episodes and be included in our monthly Patreon roundup. Join now for all the fascinating details on the Nepalese earthquake, how playing cards kept Jules sane, and his anarchist nap on his return from the summit. You'll also get bonus content about my travel story. Donations help keep the podcast running and will allow me to develop future seasons with more great guests like Jules Mountain. Thank you for joining me for another great episode of Tripping Up. Cheers! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.